Hello everyone, welcome to episode 46 of Infraction, our true crime podcast. I'm Nadia. And I'm Sally. This is the second part of Emily's story. So if you haven't listened to last week's episode yet, please do go back and listen because this is literally going to start right in the middle of the case. And it probably won't make much sense if you haven't listened to part one yet. Today we are picking up right where we left off last week. To refresh everyone's memory, but mainly Sally's, this is what we learned last week. Emily Morris had been a wonderful student and an even better athlete at Lindbergh High School in Missouri in the US in the 1990s. She joined the athletics team and her coach, James Wilder, started spending extra time with Emily. He began creating a compliant victim out of Emily by discussing his personal life, his pregnant wife and his sex life with 15-year-old Emily. We discussed last week that turning Emily into a compliant victim was not anything that was within her control. She was a minor. He was her 29-year-old teacher. He was grooming her, breaking her down, flirting with her, making her think she was special. His behaviour was predatory. In 1996, he first sexually assaulted Emily, and this sexual assault continued until Emily turned 18 and left for university. Emily didn't realise that she was a victim of sexual abuse until 18 years later, however, in 2013. Her life up to that point had taken a bad turn. She had been married to an older man and the couple had had two children. In 2012, her husband divorced her and he was granted sole custody of their children. Emily had turned to alcohol and soon became dependent on it. She suffered with alcoholism for the rest of her life. This dependency did something, though. It opened her up to conversation about her past and the sexual abuse she had suffered at the hands of James Wilder. She opened up to her parents and they convinced her to go to the police, which she did do. On July 2nd, 2013, Emily met James Wilder in a car park in his car. Emily was now 33, but she was clearly nervous about meeting him. We heard and spoke about the audio recording from this meeting, where James turned everything back on Emily he made their, in inverted commas, relationship her fault. He admitted that what they had done had been legally wrong, but he said that this was just because of state laws in Missouri. He claimed that if he went to Spain, which at the time of recording that audio had the age of 13 as the age of consent, that he would be able to sleep with a 15-year-old in the street if he wanted to. Sally commented on the fact that he was trying to distance himself from the fact that he had sexually abused a child. He was clearly very fixated on the age of Emily, her being 16, and that age not being super young like other, in his own words, creepers. Emily appeased him throughout this entire audio. She laughed along with him, she agreed with him, and she laughed about their past history. Then, she went home and cried the entire night. She gave the audio to the police, and in August 2013, James Wilder was arrested. He was charged with six counts of statutory sodomy in the second degree. That is where we ended last week's episode. So, let's talk about the charges James Wilder faced. Under Missouri law, statutory sodomy means oral sex, anal sex, or penetration of a finger or object. For a second degree sodomy charge, the victim has to be under 17, and the offender has to be over 21 years old. Emily Morris was under the age of 17 on at least six of the occasions that James Wilder sexually assaulted her, and James was of course 29 the first time he touched Emily. I'm not sure if I made it clear in last week's episode, so I will make it clear now, Uh, but James didn't ever rape Emily, they never had sexual intercourse, um, but of course he did abuse her in other ways, and this is where these charges came from. After his arrest, James Wilder was released on bond whilst he awaited trial, and Emily started working hard to build as much evidence against James Wilder as possible. 
The recorded confession was something, but it wasn't enough. Neither James or Emily had mentioned their ages once in the recording, and therefore a defence lawyer would likely have been able to cast reasonable doubt on James's confession. Coach James Wilder was put on administrative leave from Lindbergh High School, where he still worked, pending the outcome of the trial. He was on full pay on administrative leave for almost two full years. At this point, are they able to draw upon... Because we know for certain that there was at least one other allegation and one other um, victim who sort of named themselves and went to the police. Are they able to draw upon this as well? Like I know you say the recording in itself isn't enough. Can they use the fact that like other allegations were made or not? Yeah, but it would be up to those victims. So, um, and we get into it a little bit later, like J- um, okay. Emily does try to get more people to come forward and there's more people even on top of the ones who we know about and who we spoke about in last week's episode. Um, so yeah, ultimately the discretion is at each individual's almost as, you know, in the same way that the discretion was with, was with her. Like she was asked if she would be a witness in uh, that 2008 um, sexual assault oh, allegation yeah, against course. James Wilder and she said no. So um, it's kind of, yeah, it would be dependent on each victim and whether or not they wanted to come forward. Mm. So during the time after James's arrest, Emily became more motivated and started really working on her recovery from her alcohol addiction. She got a steady waitressing job and she began to spend more time with her children and friends. She worked out regularly and got back into exercising. Her mother, Joan, said that Emily was doing exceptionally well at not drinking. Joan marked days when Emily had stayed sober, or days when she had drank in her pocket diary. She marked the sober days with a green pen, and the days when Emily drank with a red pen. Throughout 2014, there were more sober streaks in her little pocket diary than there had ever been before. Emily was doing so well. Her parents were happy. It was good for them to see her so motivated. She focused her spare time on the upcoming case, despite continuous knockbacks with the trial date being moved time and time again. Despite her positive outlook, though, not all was rosy. Someone started a I Support Mr Wilder Facebook page, and on that page people tore Emily apart. They called her promiscuous, and they said that she was making everything up because she'd lost her husband and her kids. They absolutely annihilated her character, and they painted Emily as the bad guy. Emily then started believing that maybe they were right and maybe she was the bad guy. Her family and friends rallied round her and told her that she wasn't wrong. She was being the voice for those who couldn't step forward and raise their own voice. They told her to keep going. She had done the hard bit. They just had to wait for the trial. Emily put on a brave face against the world and started working harder and harder to make sure she had enough evidence against James Wilder to make a conviction stick. She started reaching out to other people to see if anyone else had been a victim of Coach Wilder's. She received a lot of messages from people who had been victims and from people who had known potential victims. She spent hours texting them and asking for information, and she began to compile a wealth of evidence against Coach Wilder. Unfortunately, the identities of those victims would never be revealed. On November 2nd, 2014, Richard spoke to his daughter on the phone. The next day, he tried to check in with his daughter, but she didn't respond to his messages. On the 4th of November, Richard went to his daughter's home, concerned that he hadn't heard from Emily in two days. He opened her door and walked into the hallway, calling her name, but she didn't respond. He walked through and looked into her living room and kitchen, but she wasn't there. He walked into her bedroom and saw his daughter lying face down on the ground. He called out to her, but again, she didn't respond. He walked around the side of the bed and bent down to touch his daughter. Emily's body was ice cold, 
despite the fact that she was wrapped up in her duvet. He noticed her kitchen bin was pulled over her head, wedged over her shoulders. In a confused state, he pulled it off her body. He rolled her body over and held his daughter. He then phoned Joan and sobbed down the phone to her that Emily was dead. Joan immediately made her way to Emily's house. The whole journey, she prayed that Richard had got it wrong. She entered Emily's bedroom and knew that Richard was right. Emily was gone. Joan sat next to her daughter's body and played with her hair. Emily had always loved having her hair played with when she was growing up. She told Richard to phone the police while she sat and cuddled her daughter's body and sobbed. Richard phoned the police, and then he sprung into action. He picked up the bin that he had removed from Emily's body and moved it back into the kitchen where it belonged. He noticed that the kitchen was a bit of a mess, so he started tidying up, placing what? empty Why? wrappers and such in the bin that he'd just put back in its rightful place. Is this intentional, or is he just kind of panicked and confused with grief? Because surely all he's doing right now is confusing a, I don't know, crime scene. Mm, it's so difficult like I feel so honestly I feel just feel so bad for him he basically just said in an interview afterwards like I didn't want people thinking that she was a slob like that the house was like a mess and I just didn't I didn't want the police to come around and think that that she was a slob so I just like tidied up and like at no point in his mind did he ever think I think yeah I think it was just shock he didn't think that it was a crime scene he didn't he wasn't concerned with preserving a crime scene um he just knew that the police were going to come and he didn't want them to think that Emily yeah, Emily was a slob, which I think is just such mm. a parental thing to feel like, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So a short while later, the police arrived at Emily's home. They surveyed the home, but didn't notice any signs of forced entry. They did note, however, that Emily's back door had been unlocked and was open. They didn't see any immediate signs of a crime, however. Her purse full of money was set out in the open, and her money was still there. There were also two empty bottles of vodka in the bedroom bin, as well as a bit of vomit. The police asked Emily's parents if Emily had a drinking problem and whether it was possible that she'd drunk both bottles of vodka that night. Her parents said that she had battled with alcoholism for years, but in the past year she had been so much better and was controlling her addiction well. They explained that she had been going through a really traumatic legal case, but that things had been working out well for her, and that the preliminary hearing was just a few weeks away. She was in a good place, she wasn't drinking heavily at all at the time. The police didn't quite buy this and they speculated that Emily had died from alcohol poisoning. The medical examiner performed an autopsy and stated that the official cause of death for Emily Morris was asphyxiation caused by a trash can lined with a plastic bag over her head. The manner of death, however, had been left as undetermined. Some members of the police department believed that Emily's manner of death had been an accident. They believed that Emily had gotten so drunk that she had thrown up in her bedroom bin She'd then got on the bin from her kitchen, placed it next to her while she rested on the floor, and then they surmised that she'd needed to vomit again. They speculated that she had gone to throw up in the kitchen bin and then fallen into it, getting it stuck around her shoulders. They said that she then passed out and suffocated to death. God, that's awful. Emily's family refused to accept this. They believed her manner of death was homicide. Emily had been found on her bedroom floor, by her bed with her phone and snacks next to her body. They told the police that this is what Emily had done when she'd been detoxing. It was how she had always detoxed, camping out on the floor to help with her nausea, with her duvet and her phone and her snacks around her. They pressured the medical examiner into doing a toxicology report to support their view, and what he found shocked even the police. Emily's blood alcohol concentration was less than 0.048%. 
For reference, the legal limit to drive in Missouri is 0.08%. Her blood alcohol levels of 0.048 reflected that she'd had around two drinks. They also tested the alcohol levels taken from the fluid in her eye. This test showed a higher level of alcohol than her blood test showed, but what that indicated was just that at some point that day she had been more drunk. At the time of her death, however, she had not really been intoxicated at all. The police still believed that maybe she'd been drunk or tipsy enough to fall in the bin and then had not been able to get it off. Her parents again disputed this. During one of Emily's incredibly bad months with alcohol, she had been hospitalised and had nearly died. On that occasion, her blood alcohol level had been 0.550%. A blood alcohol level of 0.4% or above is considered to be associated with death caused by alcohol poisoning, and on that occasion Emily's had been higher, and yet she'd survived. They told the police this to explain to them just how much alcohol Emily could handle. Two drinks wouldn't have even touched her. Interestingly, the toxicology report also showed something else in Emily's bloodstream. There were very low traces of a muscle relaxant. Her family didn't know what this could be. Emily wasn't on any kind of prescription medication. The Morris family's issue was that it wasn't the St. Louis County Police Department investigating her murder. It was the Baldwin Police Department. The family felt that the Baldwin PD didn't understand what Emily was like. They didn't understand that she was getting better and that she wouldn't have gotten so drunk that she got stuck in a bin and died. It wasn't who Emily was. She also would never have taken her own life, not when she was just weeks away from facing James Wilder in court. This was something that had been motivating her and spurring her along. It was something she wanted to do. It wasn't something she wanted to hide from. Emily's family were convinced that someone had murdered her, and they soon learnt that James Wilder was not the only person who might want Emily out of the picture. In July 2014, Emily had moved into a new apartment complex and she'd started making friends with the other people who lived in her block. One of her neighbours was an officer who worked for the Baldwin Police Department. The two started chatting and possibly flirting a little bit, but Emily didn't want any kind of relationship with him. She told her friends that he creeped her out a bit, she said he was always lurking around, and it felt like he had become a bit obsessed with her. One day, she was in her apartment with a man she had been seeing. He was an older married man, a coach at a different high school in fact, and the two oh had been seeing god. each other on and off for a long time. Why'd you say, oh my god? Doesn't she seeing an older coach? Yeah, her mum did actually comment on that on one of the, I think it was the Oxygen documentary. Um... And she said, like, it was just so clear, like, from all the decisions that Emily made in her life that they just, like, stemmed from from what had happened to her as a child, which is just so sad, but it's obviously, you can, you can imagine it. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, this man and Emily had been seeing each other on and off for quite a long time. Um, and on this occasion, uh, the man and Emily had been fondling on her sofa in her apartment when her front door suddenly had burst open. The officer, who had been infatuated with her, stood staring at Emily and this man on the sofa. Oh, God, that's so weird. Mm-hmm. It was quite clear to Emily that his obsession with her had gotten out of control. The police officer wasn't the only person who had started making unwanted appearances in Emily's life. The wife of that high school coach that Emily had been seeing on and off had found out about their affair and had been sending Emily threatening messages. Of course, on top of both these people, there was also James Wilder. In the weeks before her death, Emily had told her family that she thought James Wilder was negotiating a plea deal. She believed he was going to be convicted and that she would finally get what she always wanted. 
for him to admit to what he had done and for him to lose his licence that enabled him to teach. There were three people who might have had a motive to wanting Emily dead, or at the very least, harmed or intimidated. The Baldwin PD didn't investigate any of these possible theories, though. It was not lost on the family that there was a huge conflict of interest here, given that one of the possible suspects, the man who had been infatuated with Emily, worked for that very same police department investigating her death. The real roadblock that the family faced was that there had been no photographs taken of the actual crime scene. If you can remember, Richard had taken the bin off of Emily's head and then had rolled her body over to cradle her. Because nobody other than Richard had seen how the bin had been placed over her head, the medical examiners couldn't determine whether her death was an accident or not. For example, if it had been wedged firmly over her shoulders, so much so that she couldn't move her arms or attempt to get the bin off, then it quite clearly could have been used as a murder weapon, suffocating her to death. Richard had also absentmindedly taken the bin and filled it with rubbish from the kitchen. This again had an impact on forensically testing the bin liner inside it. The police were adamant though that this was either a suicide or an accident, and they were convinced that it was not murder. They said that the fact that nothing had been stolen proved their point that no foul play had been involved. I think it's quite easy to dispute this statement. If someone was trying to keep her quiet, say to stop her from testifying, or perhaps if someone was angry at her for sleeping with their husband, they wouldn't have wanted or needed to steal from her after they'd killed her or harmed her. But yeah, so I agree with that. Um, They're very separate crimes, like a murder motivated by theft is not what anyone is suggesting here. Mm -hmm. Um, On the flip side, I think perhaps if it had have been um, murder, would it not have made sense for someone to frame the scene as if there had had been a theft to sort of Mm -hmm. cover their own tracks, make it look like it wasn't revenge or it wasn't someone who, like, knew her, um, but instead was just, like, a random theft. Like, obviously, I understand that you'd argue they tried to frame it as a suicide, um, but... That seems to me more, I don't know, possibly a more kind of niche way. Because then you're like arguing mm-hmm. with the concept of um, like like her family pointed out, actually she wasn't feeling suicidal, she was very motivated by the trial. Um, whereas maybe if you tried to frame it as like a random break-in, then you wouldn't have like those rebuttals straight away. But yeah, I do definitely see your point. It's a silly reason just to rule out the fact that there was like any sort of foul play. Yeah, yeah, completely. Yeah, no, exactly. It's exactly that. It's it's like like you said. No one is suggesting here that um, like burglary gone wrong or something like that was was the mm. motive behind this crime. So the police then found out evidence that in the past Emily had suffered from seizures. They suggested that maybe Emily had been sick into the bin. At that moment, she'd had a seizure and fallen headfirst into the bin, getting stuck, and then she'd passed out and died. This was, of course, incredibly speculative, and there was no other evidence to suggest that she had suffered any type of seizure. Was she... So what I'm not particularly clear on at the moment is that um, we're saying that the blood alcohol level for her was quite low at the time, yet also her family are trying to argue that she was in the position she would when she would detox with, like, the snacks and her duvet. Um, Mm -hmm. But obviously seizuring is a symptom of alcohol detox, so if they're saying she was detoxing, then actually a seizure would be quite likely, probably. But but if she's detoxing, then why would she 
have had such a low alcohol blood alcohol limit. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. That's interesting. I didn't realise that seizures were um, a symptom of detoxing. Her mother had basically mm. said that she hadn't seen Emily had a seizure, for, like she hadn't seen her have a seizure for years. So she, mm. she, it was just kind of like a thing that she felt maybe that the police had just kind of jumped onto. It's interesting yeah. what you say regarding like the detoxing and things like that. I think it's interesting that at some point during that day, her blood alcohol level was higher. Like she had had more to drink because that um, was obviously shown from the fluid taken from her eye. Um, which metabolizes a lot slower than the blood alcohol levels in the blood. So, yeah, I, it's hard, isn't it? Yeah, was she detoxing? Was she not? I mean, I don't know because I don't know anyone who has ever detoxed and I don't really know anything about it. But I mean, is it possible that she'd had a drink during the day and she thought, no, like I really need to get over this, like let's detox again. And maybe she'd had a drink to try and um, fight or, you know, suppress the feelings of the addiction coming back. And then she'd thought, no, like, I'm going to get through this, like, get on the floor, get my duvet, have my phone there, you know, lay on the ground, stop the nausea to try and move past that that feeling. I mean, re- I don't, I'm speculating massively. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that is all feasible. I just think it's a really, it is a really hard thing, I think, to understand unless you fully know, like, the time between like you know when did she actually die versus her last drink etc it's it's all quite like complicated to it's too difficult really to know isn't it like you say all you can do essentially is speculate I think because obviously no one knows exactly like the series of events to her death so you can't like know yeah like had she been really like drunk that morning um had she been drinking like heavily in the days up to it because also you'd sort of think if she had to yeah, was she fully detoxing or actually, mm-hmm. like you say, was she just trying to resist the urge of having a drink in general? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's hard to know, isn't it? But definitely all kind of factors, but I can see why it would complicate it even more for like her family and the police and stuff. Mm-hmm. And actually something that you just said about, something you just said has like really just like st- st- like stuck with me because... The thing that really struck me about this case when I was researching it is like there doesn't seem to be like any clear answer as to what day Emily died. So she was last heard from on November 2nd, but her body wasn't discovered until November 4th. Um, and her date of death has been put down as November 4th, but there isn't any real commentary surrounding that. So, I mean, I could massively be overthinking it entirely. But to me, it just seems odd that there was no kind of question mark over it, given that it might have been possible that she died on like the 2nd or 3rd. And then I kind of got into like this wormhole of like trying to look into whether blood alcohol levels can change after a person has died. But I mean, it's really hard to tell. And largely, Mm. I think it seems obvious to me that alcohol wouldn't metabolize after death because the body isn't breaking it down. But I mean, if it does change, then surely that answer, that could answer kind of like the mystery surrounding her death. Because if maybe her alcohol contents had been higher on the day that she had died, say it had been on the second or third, um, then that kind of maybe answers the question about, you know, this could have just been like an awful accident because she, she'd she been too heavily intoxicated, if you understand what I mean. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think without, yeah, like you say, having the, those really quite defined like levels or like a bit of a timeline, then yeah, it absolutely it changes it from like a, a horrible drunk mistake a possible attempted suicide if you know alcohol ultimately is a depressant um yeah versus an accident or foul play i completely agree yeah it's so difficult isn't it like like you said the only thing that you can do is speculate i think my gut feeling is that it wasn't an accident because i think the timings with regards to the trial are kind of just too coincidental and i think unless you're completely 
like obliterated, like so, so intoxicated. I don't see how you can be so drunk that you can't lift your arms to pull a bin off your head. And I don't know how you could physically get something like a bin stuck over your head to the point where you wouldn't be able to physically raise your arms to take it off. If you know what I mean, like if you've got it on, then you should be able to get it off. I don't know. I think it's difficult. You guess, yeah. Obviously, her blood alcohol levels is the evidence that she wasn't totally drunk. So, yeah, just more and more, I think there's, you could just spiral on it so much, I think. Yeah, and I think the other thing I would say is that I think for me, uh, yeah, it sounds like the science suggests that she wasn't extremely intoxicated and therefore like, it probably wasn't a drunk like accident. Um, mm. That's not to say like I think alcoholism is an incredibly like powerful disease and mm-hmm. I think it's probably foolish for anyone to rule out that she may or may not have felt suicidal because actually it like it's not stated enough alcohol is a very powerful drug um she obviously was going through a hugely like emotional experience and i think even if there might have been like extreme highs where she was really motivated to like see james wilder prosecuted etc that isn't to say there weren't extreme lows um so i don't mm-hmm. think like anyone can really speak to her mental state in the in that time period um but actually that said if this was suicide then it's a really strange way to go about it um mm-hmm. do you know what i mean And i think it would be a really yeah. hard thing to a i just think it's quite uh, it would be like an odd thing to think of. I don't think it would naturally... It's not very stereotypical, is it? I think there's lots of other ways that might come to mind first. Um, mm-hmm. And secondly, I would have thought it'd be a really hard thing to override. Yeah. In the sense that, like, obviously it's possible she had taken a muscle relaxant and that was, like, used as, like, an aid. Um, But also, fundamentally, like, we do have quite a lot of self-preservation as humans. And I think the feeling mm-hmm. of, like, suffocating, as you've said with something that you'd have thought would be relatively easy to remove um Mm -hmm. i'd have thought it'd be really hard to like physically stop yourself taking like the bin off your head Mm -hmm. in order to like breathe um yeah but that's just kind of again it is just speculation so i do 100% see the angle for foul play um i would have thought that there would be like more signs of a struggle and i know that her dad kind of unfortunately cleaned up a lot of the crime scene but yeah. in the time like between him calling the police and them arriving I wouldn't have thought that they could remove all of it and also if like there was a struggle you'd kind of think maybe there'd be some like DNA evidence of someone else having been there yeah I don't know it just it's difficult isn't it I don't feel like there's particularly clear for me I actually can't really make up my mind either way in this case yeah I think there's almost like there's not enough evidence really like it would be very different if if there was yeah a, a photograph maybe or something of the actual or a timeline bin. like you say yeah the yeah photograph, time, exactly yeah. i think just to see how far over her the bin was because i think if you mm. you could make up your mind quite easily if, if say it was so pulled it was pulled down so far that she wouldn't have been able to raise her arms then it would be very difficult to imagine how she got it on her head unless she like almost like nose dived into it do you know what i mean and then it just seems like ridiculous like that would have to be yeah, the most exactly. unfortunate accident ever if that is if that had happened that way. So yeah, I think ultimately there just isn't enough evidence to be able to tell. Yeah, yeah, it's quite well, yeah, definitely a rare one. That although, like you say, exactly, how would she even have got it onto that 
force. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I feel like the, the muscle relaxant is probably significant in it somehow. But mm. again, you'd need you'd need such specific timing to know like, okay, I'm going to do this to myself and then wait for this to kick in so that I then can't like undo it or or if someone foul play was involved, again, like they would need quite extreme timing unless they'd like literally been with her until it had sunk in pretty seriously Mm -hmm. um and then like when she was really groggy they'd done it knowing that like she would have suffocated before she woke up and like Mm -hmm. removed it um but again again it would just be a really odd way to think to kill someone wouldn't it so i think it's one of those ones you can talk yourself into or out of both Mm -hmm. options yeah no i completely agree So in January 2015, just two months after Emily's body had been found, Baldwin Police Department officially closed the investigation into Emily's death. Uh, They did not investigate or name any potential suspects. So as far as I can see, um, and from what I've read, there's still no manner of death on her her, um, death certificate. God, that must have been really hard for her family. It was. It was really hard. Joan Morris... um, Emily's mum said that she remembered her 12-year-old granddaughter asking her how her mother had died and Joan basically said like that caught me completely flat-footed she was like I had no idea what to tell her and she said that she like paused for a moment and then she just said I can tell you that she didn't commit suicide and she didn't die because she was drinking but when you're older I'll tell you more and can you just imagine like just horrific I can't I can't imagine how she would have felt just having her granddaughter ask her that um Especially given, I think, Emily's background and, you know, like, her fighting her alcoholism and all the rest of it. I think it would just be really, really difficult and you'd want to, yeah, like, I mean, like she did. She wanted to make it clear that she didn't think that her, like, her daughter and, and her granddaughter's mother had died because of, of drinking. But, of course, she was 12 years old, so what can you say? Yeah, exactly. Like, I think you'd feel such a a sense of, like, no, I know they were better than that. And because everyone else probably will jump to that conclusion and I think yeah you'd be so desperate to be able to prove to yeah the daughter um that actually like no that wasn't why yeah but yeah really really difficult really sad and then an even bigger blow to Emily's family came just days after her death when they held a funeral for Emily one of the detectives from St Louis County PD attended the funeral to pay his respects Shortly after the service, he spoke to the Morris family and told them that the sodomy charges against James Wilder had been dropped. Why? Because she's died. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, oh, as you can imagine... Yeah, well, completely. So it wasn't actually something that the family had ever considered happening. And they asked, you know, what had changed. Uh, the evidence was still there. Over a year of work had gone into compiling all the evidence against him. And they kind of said, like, just because Emily was was now deceased, like, it didn't mean that James Wilder hadn't committed a crime. And the yeah. St. Louis County prosecutor, Sheila Worley, told Jessica Tester for BuzzFeed News that once Emily died, her prosecuting office couldn't move forward with the case. She said that based on the evidence against James Wilder, what they needed was Emily's sworn testimony to prove her case. And now that she was dead, she couldn't give that. God, that is heartbreak, isn't it? I never understand why in some cases it feels like things go on ahead like after a key person in the case has died or or even sometimes like when people drop charges 
Like, mm-hmm. it seems to me that, like, the police and the, like, CPS go on to, like, pursue cases anyway. And in other yeah, times, do. like, they don't. And it all just kind of dissipates as soon as either, like, you lose a witness, like, be that just through absence or through, like, in this case, death. And mm-hmm. it just must be so heartbreaking because, if anything, it's more important, like, now she's dead. And I know that that isn't, like, how the law works and that probably people are limited in every case and we've talked about loads before that unfortunately cases only often go to court if they have like a reasonable chance of winning but it Mm -hmm. is so infuriating isn't it because you think actually this was like this mattered so much like the for her family this was about clearing her name like people understanding people believing like ruining his legacy and kind of protecting hers like making her life really like I don't know worth something and living on Mm -hmm. in the fact that like they'd have secured like a yeah a prosecution against someone who what's annoying as well is i understand that maybe her testimony was crucial but like they know she wasn't the only person that's what is really frustrating Mm -hmm. no i completely agree completely agree so one of the police officers who had worked closely with emily on her case had told the family that emily had told him that she'd been preparing for a deposition just weeks before she died And so a deposition, for those of you who don't know, is a sworn testimony is made out of court, but then it's usually put into like a written transcript um, that can then be used later on during court proceedings. So if Emily Mm. had done a deposition, then this sworn statement could be used as evidence in the case against James Wilder. So her family like contacted everyone involved in the case, you know, her lawyers, other police officers, everything, but it turned up nothing. Um... So that was so frustrating for them. It seemed, yeah, that Emily hadn't gotten around to giving her deposition before she was killed. Oh, Mm. Freudian slip. Um, Emily hadn't gotten around to giving her deposition before she died. So, yeah, I think the family, the family just felt like they were receiving blow after blow. um, And then it was basically only going to get worse for them. Because Mm. after the case against James Wilder was dropped, his court records were also sealed This caused a lot of grief for the Morris family. He'd been arrested twice for statutory sodomy, accusations that had been made from two different women. Yet for some reason, his criminal record was completely clear. What does that mean to seal his court record? So it means that basically future employers and stuff like that wouldn't, he wouldn't have to uh, tell them that he'd been arrested for these um, sodomy charges. Which is just outrageous because the man works in like a bloody school and I know Mm -hmm. that the world works as innocent as proven guilty, but I'm sorry, there's two charges against him at this point and it should be the school's prerogative whether to hire him or not based on that. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, he fair enough can walk in there and say, I haven't actually been found guilty of anything, but I just find it like, yeah incomprehensible that he should be able to be allowed to not even mention it that to me just yeah. seems like the a surefire way to enable serious serial sex offenders to just move around mm-hmm. a country working in schools with absolutely no repercussions which frankly is what we know he's done yeah well, completely i think that's what's so frustrating about this is like obviously yes like absolutely you're innocent until you're proven guilty but the thing with uh sexual assault charges and you know we've spoken about it before is they are notoriously hard to convict the conviction rate on them is so low so like what just because you get away with not being convicted for it you you then don't have to declare it i mean i just yeah i find it incomprehensible to be honest because it, it is like exactly like you say like it's a surefire way to create serial sex offenders yeah and even if like once if it had happened once in this case i'd have found it very difficult because 
like I feel like we know it to be true mm-hmm. but I do understand that actually allegations if allegations alone were enough like they they are career ending for some innocent people mm-hmm. but like twice you kind of think really like would that be hard as such a hard law to implement to say actually you can have your record sealed after one unsuccessful like allegation that never made to trial but actually multiple mm-hmm. allegations means you're obliged to disclose that to like any employers you'd think that yeah, sounds fairly because there reasonable. are laws like that in place there are laws like mm. that in place like i'm absolutely i'm almost like i'm almost like 90 percent certain that if i ever was to get arrested even if i wasn't charged with anything i would have to declare that to the um sra because I'm like working in the legal profession. Like I think I would have mm. to declare that. And I'm pretty sure there's, you know, things like DBS checks and stuff. Like I'm sure when you're working with children, you have to declare if you've been arrested and stuff like that. Um, and I would imagine that specifically for a statutory sodomy charge, obviously that he was arrested for, um, that yeah, I I am honestly, it boggles me that he didn't face any kind of reprimand for any of this. So mm. he... um. But basically the only reprimand that he faced was that he had been banned or he was banned from working at any school in the Lindbergh area. But that was it. He still had his teaching license. He had still taken home almost two years worth of pay whilst Lindbergh High School had put him on administrative leave. And he can work anywhere in the rest of the country. Yeah, anywhere. As a teacher. Yeah. 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 And it just seems, I don't know. And they didn't even fire him. That was the other thing. They didn't, Lindbergh High School didn't fire him. They let him resign. They gave him a severance package. Oh. Like after after putting him on administrative leave for for six counts of statutory sodomy charges that related to a student at Lindbergh High School, like for his mm. time at that high school, and they just put him on two years paid leave. Oh, outrageous! Not to mention all the stuff that they did before that when they accused Emily of having an affair with her teacher. They never reprimanded him, like all of that yeah, sort of yeah. stuff. Yeah, just outrageous. Um. So Emily's family didn't want to see all of Emily's long, tiring months of effort go to waste. And they wanted to get justice for Emily and for the other victims of James Wilder. They knew that Emily had been in contact with other survivors of abuse and they wanted to continue her investigatory work. Their issue, however, was that someone had changed the passcode on Emily's phone. She had had the same passcode most of her life and everyone in her family knew what it was. But when they'd recovered her phone from that night when her body was found, her passcode had been changed and they couldn't get into her phone. Eventually, a prosecutor investigating the case managed to get it unlocked and she was able to read through Emily's messages. In August 2013, around about the time that James Wilder had been charged with the sex crimes against Emily Morris, Emily had been in a text message exchange with someone unknown. Emily texts this person, quote, Something bad happened to me at high school by a teacher and I'm only just coming forward about it now. He's currently a PE teacher and the main girls track and cross country coach. The other person responded with, is he the coach at Lindbergh? Emily responded, yes. The other individual said, Jim, question mark. Emily said, yes, how did you know? They replied, holy crap, because the same thing happened to one of my friends with him. Emily said, is that the case that went to the news? So this was most likely referencing that victim from 2008 that we spoke about in last week's episode. Mm. The person responded, no, someone else. She told me about it and there are probably many others. This was big news to the prosecutor investigating this. It showed that there was another victim later on in oh, that so same month. they didn't month. know that at this point? No. Oh, no. right. So I assumed that they knew Emily had been, like, gathering other victims. So, people kind of knew. So, Emily had messaged one of her friends saying, 
Um, I have six counts against him. And since I've come out, four more girls have come forward. But they'd all come forward to Emily. So it was like Emily right. was like working on this. Like the police mm. didn't know about any of this. There was no statements or anything like that, which made it like obviously incredible difficult for her family. Because okay, although they I had like you. the hope, they had like the hope because there were other victims. Um, but they didn't know who any of these victims were. They weren't named in Emily's mm. phone. They weren't named in her records or anything. It was really unclear who they were. Um, and yeah, basically these victims never came forward to the police. So Dennis Cook, who had been the detective who had worked closely with Emily from the start of her case, said that he had spoken to some of the alleged victims, but that none of them wanted to go through the trauma that Emily had gone through. And they didn't want to be made a pariah in the way that Emily had been. And adding to that, one girl said to Dennis, if I don't think about it, it didn't happen. That's sad. Mm-hmm. Other individuals who have information about James Wilder and other educators at Lindbergh High School at the time that this all went on said that she and others wouldn't come forward because they were convinced that Emily had been killed by someone because of her association with the case. They also said that Emily had been scared about, quote, Jim and his mates when this case was ongoing. So that's like huge if that is the case which i mean it seems like it has it is the case you know other people have come forward and they've said that they have information about james wilder but also about other teachers at Lindbergh high school but that they're mm. so scared for like their safety and their lives that they don't want to come forward with it which is just horrific that they feel that scared yeah and it really changed the scale of it doesn't it it's, it makes it feel less kind of like a one-man crime and actually starts to feel a bit more like i don't know a bit more organized yeah, completely. Well, do you remember like last week when I said that when they were like on some cinema outing with like the whole team and that um, James and Emily had been like touching each other in the cinema, like right next, sat right next to another teacher. Like mm. a lot of people are kind of like, there is no way that he didn't know, which is true. Like a lot of her friends and stuff have said in, in interviews, you know, that, that that other teacher must have known. They, they knew what he was doing. Yeah. They knew what he was like, like, which, yeah, kind of is just awful. So, yeah, unfortunately, this is where this entire case still stands. There's been no investigation into Emily's suspicious death and the case against James Wilder was dropped. He wasn't taken to trial, he wasn't convicted, and therefore he is not on any sex offenders list and he still has his teaching licence. In the last few months, a Facebook page was started by one of Emily's friends and on that page, other girls and women have come forward to say that they were also sexually abused by Coach Wilder during their high school years at Lindbergh High School. Still, no further action has been taken against him. God, that's really sad, isn't it? I can't imagine how her family must feel. And it's just infuriating that there's so many people who seem to like be aware of it or known about it or have experienced like abuse at the hands of James Wilder. And yet, like you say, like he's still just strolling around and, and I totally get that it's such a painful thing to like relive and that for a lot of people like they don't feel like they have the strength or as like you just said are scared to come forward um but god it is just it's just awful isn't it to think that he's just got away with everything um yeah. and i'm not one to sort of like incite i don't know guilt outside like a court of law like i do think our courts are important but it really does feel like in this case actually it's pretty cut and dry and mm -hmm. that this isn't just a case of i don't know like a witch hunt do you know what i mean it sounds mm. to be honest like he was a serial predator and it was pretty known about in the community and i think it always i'm always shocked and disgusted um when you hear stuff like this and 
actually about how recent so much of it is and po- possibly still going on today like when you sort of think about celebrities and and singers and stuff um you know like years ago that were really just known paedophiles and mm-hmm. and it was kind of accepted um i just think it's always quite like haunting how recent like th- th- these things are and we mm-hmm. sort of think oh we've come such a long way and you kind of hope like have we like all the you know conviction rates are still so low on crimes like this you know we have we really moved away from a place i think there is a lot more particularly in schools safeguarding in place um but like god you just hope there's enough don't you and that like if this were to happen today you just really hope like there's no way that anyone would get away with it once without a kind of full trial full hearing full case never mind mm-hmm. as many times as ostensibly james wilder has mm-hmm no, I definitely, I completely agree. I think that's that's what is so sad for me in this case is just that it's just that the fact that it just never went to trial. Like, I think that's just what's mm. so shocking. It's just that there was so much evidence against him. There were so many victims. And yes, I like fully understand that like a lot of the victims didn't want to come forward. And I think I, I totally understand that. I, but I just find it really difficult that even for her family and even for Emily, you know, when she was still alive, that she just didn't get her day in court. Um, yeah. It's just awful. There are no real words for it because it just it just seems horrific that this is quite possibly still going on if he is still mm. teaching. The fact that he's still able to go out there and teach. And, you know, there was just there was such a long time between Emily, what happened to Emily and what happened to like other victims in like 2008 onwards. Like there was like, what, 13, 14, 15 years between all that. It's just horrific. Yeah, to just... How many girls is that? Yeah. Yeah, completely. Just awful to think about. Really awful. So the month before Emily died, she wrote to a friend, quote, It has been awful, but at the same time, I feel as though I have been finding me again. I truly feel as though I am gaining my dignity, myself, and the love for who I am back. At first, I doubted myself and was scared to death, but now I realise I'm not only freeing myself, but saving other girls. It's a blessing, and I know I've done the right thing. He will be convicted. End quote. Thank you everyone for joining us for these last two episodes. It has been a real journey. It took me so long to research it all. uh, So I really hope it gave everyone a clear insight into this case. Um, And for those of you who, who knew Emily's story, I hope it gave you more things to think about. Thanks so much for joining us and we will see you all next week for another brand new episode. Bye.